1: Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your co host, Shahna Zaqani. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you're all well. I hope you're all peaceful. Today, I speak with Marian Holmes Kads about her latest book, Wives and Work Islamic Law and Ethics Before Modernity, published in 2022 with Columbia University Press. This fascinating book explores the question of wives' domestic responsibilities from a Sunni Islamic legal perspective covering scholarship from the 9th to the 14th centuries with a touch of modernity. The book addresses questions such as, does the wife have the obligation to provide housework? What counts as housework? And if it's true that the wife is not obligated to perform any household work, as many Muslims believe, how did the Muslim tradition reconcile this ruling with the anecdote involving Fatima's request to the Prophet Muhammad for help with housework uh, because she is overworked? And how did Muslim scholars reconcile this idea with what they understood to be morally, culturally, and religiously correct behavior from a woman? If the wife does choose to perform housework, is she entitled to compensation from her husband? For most Muslim scholars, historically, answers to these questions involved distinguishing between ethical ideals and legal claims. Katz shows, for instance, that the discourse on women's household labor evolves with time context, geographical location, such that, for example, in the formative period, it was widely accepted that wives are not obligated to perform any household chores, but by the 14th century, this doctrine is challenged. Overall, then, not only do scholarly views expectedly disagree with each other, but also, scholars are less interested in providing a set of generic rules about wifely duties and much more in encouraging the fulfillment of duties as they're understood in one's own social location. In our conversation today, we discuss the book's main contributions and its origins, a hadith report about Fatima's request to Muhammad for domestic help, what exactly domestic service means and who is required or obligated to perform it, and what obligation means here, what exactly is so ethical about household work since this discourse is rooted in ethics from Muslim scholars, and how male scholars have historically treated domestic service. We end with some thoughts on discussions about Islamic law and domestic service from a class perspective. For example, where do poor men and poor wives fit into this discussion? What are their rights? Without further ado, this here is my conversation with Marion Holmes-Katz. Hi, Marion. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about your book, Um, Wives and Work, Islamic Law and Ethics Before Modernity, that I enjoyed so much. I have footnote not footnotes I have comments in the margins all over I have WTFs all over that's my favorite thing to write in my books and lol everywhere and hashtag eye rolls everywhere because it was it was a joy to read all of that to say really relevant and useful book thank you so much for writing it and I am so grateful that you're here to talk to me about it because uh, I'm a huge fan of your work so this means a lot to me
0: thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure
1: So the very first question we'd like to ask our authors is to tell us about their intellectual journey. How did you get to where you are? How did you become interested in Islamic studies?
0: Okay, so I think I've sort of told this story before because I've done a previous new books network. So I'll I'll, I'll be sort of brief, but um, I actually decided I wanted to do something along the lines of religious studies, you know, like when I was whatever, a senior in high school um, planning to apply for college. Um, because I was brought up by a pair of atheists who assured me that religion was a thing of the past and that it was something that would have faded into obscurity by my adulthood. And then, you know, like in high school, I experienced Reagan's America <laughs> and the rise of the religious right as you know, sort of like a major force in national politics. But I mean, it was, you know, like it was clearly echoing things that were happening internationally. Right. Um, and, you um, it seemed to me to be very much not the observable case <laughs> that religion was uh, fading away. and 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 so, you know, sort of I, I I applied to college with the, you know, sort of with the belief that I wanted to study religion. And then in my freshman year, I you know I, I was a very like sort of systematic little kid. So I was sort of like, okay, you know, like I need to study. Uh, start studying a language that will help me with whatever religious tradition i decide to study and i fixed on arabic i was like okay i think i think i want to study islam because you know like i'm not studying i wouldn't be studying myself you know i thought about judaic studies but like wouldn't be studying myself but it also wouldn't be like distant and exotic and you know whether or not this is sound logic this was my logic as you know 16, 17 year old. Um, and so I, I signed up for first year Arabic in my freshman year and, you know, like I just fell in love with it. So I sort of never looked back. Uh, and instead of being in religious studies, I became a Near Eastern Languages and Cultures um, major. And, you know, I, I really loved it and I decided to pur- pursue it in graduate school. But, you know, in a lot of ways, the story of <laughs> my graduate school, uh, career is sort of the back background of this book because I went to the University of Chicago, and it was an extremely philologically oriented program. I mean, it was very much about the classical Arabic training, and I studied classical Persian. I studied modern Turkish, which doesn't completely make sense, but it was in my mind the you know the first step to learning Ottoman, which unfortunately I still haven't done. Um, but so you know, there was the languages, but we also did an extraordinary amount of you know sort of sitting, sitting and reading primary texts in the original languages discussing them and you know like I enormously enjoyed it but by the time I got to the stage of writing my dissertation I was sort of dissatisfied with sort of you know I didn't feel as if I had really an adequate picture of like what can I do with these skills like what's the point of this (laughs) Um, like you know sort of like what larger cause is this serving and so I went for a year abroad in Jordan, you know, sort of auditing classes at the University of Jordan, mostly in the Sharia faculty. And um, you know, over the course of that uh, year, I really was thinking about doing a dissertation on like menstrual purity, but I was thinking about it as a dissertation that was about dating and authenticating hadith, right? Uh, all, you know, like when did this come into circulation and stuff? And um, I came home and I sort of ran out of funding and I got invited to be part of a, um, you know, I got a year of funding to be part of a seminar at the uh, Div school, which is a much more sort of like theoretically oriented part of the University of Chicago. And so I was sitting around for a year with other people talking about projects that were like real religious studies projects (laughs) that were not, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can write a completely different dissertation. And it ended up being a dissertation that was really about ritual purity, right, which was like not what I was uh, trained to do. And so like in a lot of ways, I feel as if sort of the larger trajectory of my, you know, sort of career since writing the dissertation, has been sort of thinking about what things that go beyond the philological one can do with philological skills.
1: Thank you for that. Tell us about the origins of this book, of Wives and Work. What? Why now? Uh, what do you hope people might get out of this book? There are a couple of things. One is that, I mean, why now? I've got
0: to say that given, at least for me, the length of time that it takes for a project to go from like a glimmer in my eye to a book between two covers, like, the now is just so long. (laughs) You know, so like, in a lot of ways, I could say that the origins of the book are in the early stages of my marriage. (laughs) Um, You know, like I got married, you know, like as an NYU faculty member, it was a little later in life than some people. Um, But like, I will say, I just celebrated my 18th anniversary. (laughs) So, you know, like, you can't really say that it captures a moment in my life. Um, But I will say that it was a time of a lot of, you know, sort of nitty gritty on the ground negotiating who does what in a household and sort of thinking about how the you know, sort of really concrete everyday tasks that we engage in and how we divide them up. Um, You know, my partner is a man. So, I mean, you know, it was a gender division, however we did it. Um, You know, like it really brought home to me the degree to which everyday labor was a part of sort of like how we express ourselves as gendered beings (laughs) in our everyday lives and it made me think back to my childhood when and i I can document this with uh family pictures you know like i had a toy sink to wash my toy dishes and a toy you know like stove i had a toy ironing board and iron i had a toy, toy carpet sweeper uh all of which i loved right uh but i mean It just like, it was something that sort of felt relevant and meaningful to me to just sort of step back and think about through the prism of people who weren't, you know, sort of within my own cultural bubble or my own historical moment. Um, Another thing that motivated it honestly was teaching. Um, For many years, I've taught widely varying iterations of a course called Women and Gender in Islam, which, you know, sort of has, morphed from a more women-oriented to a somewhat more (laughs) gender-oriented format over the years. Um, And, you know, among other things, I have, since it has been available, taught, um, you know, actually not Keisha Lee's book, uh, Marriage and Slavery in Early Islam, but the shorter article that she published in Uh, Omid Safi's volume on progressive Islam. And, you know, a lot of times undergraduates will respond to that with a sort of like, I think it's something that they're already primed with and not necessarily something that they're getting from the article. But, you know, like, Often, And I, I I usually pair it with a chapter from Josef Rappaport's um, book on marriage, money, and divorce in medieval Islamic mm-hmm. society. And often undergraduate students will just sort of immediately respond that like, oh, well, you know, like, of course, um, you know, sort of pre-modern marriage was all about, uh, you know, sort of, Money, (laughs) right? Uh, That, you know, like now marriage is about, you know, love and companionship and personal affinity. But like in the past, marriage was a financial transaction that was about, you know, men's ownership of women and their work capacity and reproductive capacity and about, you know, sort of the preservation of family status and stuff, and they're just, you know, like, there's a sense of just sort of complete alterity, right? And, you know, like, I often, as a teacher, had the impulse to sort of try to destabilize that from both ends of the equation, right? For instance, pointing out that assortative mating means that in fact, despite how deeply we may all love our spouses, um, marriage is very much a way of perpetuating social hierarchy and you know various kinds of you know like wealth and privilege uh, today it remains a major mechanism for doing that and but also that you know for me as someone who like cared about a, a lot about Islamic law, but like obviously we all read a lot more than legal texts. I would think about other genres of writing that I was familiar with. And one actually comes up in the book, which is one of the first things that I read sort of as an undergraduate, actually, as sort of a, when I think of it uh, in retrospect, sort of a baptism by fire, but as a a sort of exercise in reading classical Arabic art prose was the ma'amat of al-hamazani. It's this, you know, sort of series of rhymed prose sort of Humorous vignettes, largely with you know, with a trickster figure as the main character, and one of them uh, has this sort of boastful nouveau riche character who, among other things, puts his foot in it socially by bragging about what a great wife he has, and his description of her involves this sort of doting. Um, you know, boast about her being so busy in the kitchen and how she's all, you know, going from the stove to, you know, to the fire to the whatever. And, but it also says, and she adores me because I adore her, you know? And, you know, this sense of like, A, the domesticity, right? That this image that this boastful guy wants to project is of his wife as being. You know, up to her elbows in cooking, and that, that that's endearing, then that he would be proud of it. Um, but also the sense of like again, it's supposed to be gauche that he's you know sort of advertising this to strangers, but you know, this sense of like marital love, right? And it's something that you, that's something that you can even find in. Uh, legal texts, right? So Sirachsi, who who you mentioned, and I think we'll get back to later, um, you know, he's someone who in many ways, as I think, having read it, read the book, you can confirm he has a very hard-nosed image of the, you know, transactional dimension of marriage. But when he's talking about, for instance, the question of like, why would it be problematic for uh spouses to testify for each other in a legal case he's sort of like well because the point of marriage is that's that spouses should prefer each other over all other people right you know like he takes it for granted that spouses are if things are going right pretty crazy about each other right and so like I really had this feeling that as a teacher, and I think teaching is, for me, as for many scholars, really the thing that is largely driving uh, a lot of the scholarship, um, I really wanted to do something that would both uh, sort of address, um, so, okay, you know, like, what can I say about sort of what domestic labor has meant for people over the centuries and the different things that it can mean for people in their sort of social and ethical lives. But also I wanted to say something about what work um, Islamic legal texts were doing and that like, they're not doing all the work, right? That if we want a multi-dimensional picture of marriage as it was understood by people in any of these times and places, the, you know, like Muslim people who are thinking in, a, in, you know, sort of a consciously Islamic framework, that not only did we need sort of different kinds of sources to be brought together to understand what sort of marriage or at least ideals of marriage might have been like, but also that we couldn't really understand the legal texts and sort of what role they were playing, what work they were doing without bringing them into conversation with other kinds of texts, right? That like, if you just read them in isolation, That people could get very sort of um, problematic ideas about, like, well, of course, you know, that's just completely different from us, (laughs) right? Uh, And and so I I wanted to dig more deeply into that.
1: I mean, and and just to add to the point about in pre-modern times, it was all marriage was all a transaction, and now it's about companionship and love. Many of these guys are talking about. I mean, as much as we might disagree with their ideas of what the wife's role should be, they highlight the companionship aspect. There's marital love, but there's also companionship. They're both entitled to good, safe companionship from each other. And I think even Taymiyyah was someone who like kept highlighting that point as well. So, but great, thank you so much for that. What are some of the um, some of the main highlights, one of the main uh, findings of the book, uh, and also. What are, what's your methodology? What sources are you working with? You mentioned, um, you know, combining different kinds of texts and different genres. Um, what are some of these texts and scholars that you're working with?
0: Okay, great. Thank you. So one thing about this book is it's also sort of, you know, a bit of a methodological experiment. That is, you know, I was coming off a book that I wrote about women's mosque access, you know, where half of it is about that as a, as a legal Problem. And, you know, there, what I had tried to do was sort of get the maximum number of data points that I could, you know, try to do to sort of create a timeline, like sort of look at long durée sort of um, doctrinal developments within individual schools of Islamic law. And um, part, you know, like part of the reason that thought that that was useful was that it sort of allowed me to try to figure out what I thought the inflection points in this conversation were and sort of like try try not to just sort of impose some sort of chronological you know, set of chronological divisions that were just imported from some other framework, whether it be dynastic or whether it be a preconceived idea of like, well, this is the trajectory of the development of Islamic law. And, you know, I found that really interesting, but one thing that I found really sort of Um, A little bit frustrating about working with that particular issue was that as far as I could tell, and it's quite possible that someone else will come and do more work uh, that finds things that I missed. But one thing that I found sort of opaque about that particular issue was it didn't really seem to be conceptually or terminologically well into, you know, sort of tightly integrated into some broader legal logic. In other words, the question of, you know, like should a woman go out to worship at the mosque or, you know, like, is it legitimate if if she decides to do so, um, it seemed pretty isolated. You know, like there are clear terminological and sort of um, structural parallels with something like a question like, can or should a woman go um, and visit uh, a graveyard, for instance. But essentially, that's sort of a modulation of the same question, right? You know, like whether a woman's wanting to go out into public space for some kind of pious uh, reason outweighed um, scholars' misgivings about women's public visibility and mobility, right? So it was sort of like, unless it was just sort of a, a, an iteration of a related, you know, some the same larger question. I didn't find a lot of sort of broader logics to relate it to. And like, it was something that was frustrating to me because like one of the reasons that I had chosen to work on ritual purity was like, it was really interesting that it was a system and the way that scholars, you know, sort of thought through individual problems often related to sort of how they were working out uh, an interrelated set of ideas. And so, I was really attracted to this idea of working on a question within marriage because it was so systemic, right? Um, but I still went in thinking that like, okay, I'm going to do a similar thing and just sort of try to look at the maximum number of sources that I can. And I remember that it was when it, you know, because it seemed like explicitly addressing the question of, you know, does a wife have a legal obligation to provide domestic labor? it was basically like maybe two places that you could routinely expect to find it, right? You know, you could expect to, um, you know, uh, sometimes you could find it in sort of lists of, you know, sort of marital obligations, but, uh, you know, like mostly you could find it within the sort of um, sections on the maintenance that a husband is obligated to provide to his wife and you know does it include support for a servant right and if so under what circumstances um, and and you know like often it would be dispatched in a sentence or two right so I mean uh, you know at first blushed it seemed like a similar question in the sense that there wasn't going to be a huge amount of meat to get into in individual texts, but because of the systematic, you know, sort of the structural cohesiveness of scholars' analysis of the marriage contract, it turned out that when you started pulling that thread and sort of looking at, well, what are the logics that produce that one or two lines in a given, uh, that you ended up looking at a lot of different sections, right? And often sections, I think one of the sections that turned out to be most productive was looking at uh, a chapter of the sort of standard framework of what's often called substantive law, although I not I know that's not necessarily the best term, but for these these compilations that give actual rules in different legal areas. And it was often the one on uh, contracts of hire <laughs> um, that would have that would address the question whether it was, valid, you know, at least hypothetically, whether it would be valid for a wife to contract with her husband to receive wages for housework. And that question was addressed with what seemed to me surprising frequency. Um, and, and, but so like what, when I started looking at all the different places where this issue could come up, I realized that there are more than I would previously have assumed <laughs> where it directly came up. For instance, you know, like, questions about legal claims that can be raised uh, at the dissolution of a household. For instance, you know, like, what if a wife uh, raises an ownership claim for, like, flax or cotton that was bought by her husband but spun by her where her labor becomes an issue in terms of who's entitled to what so there was that category that was larger than I thought it was but then when you started thinking about it sort of structurally there were all these other points that I felt I needed to draw in right uh where it was sort of like oh well is this because this thinker is you know sort of imagining the contractual exchange as involving x and y and then I would have to look at other issues to figure out what was going on. And so I remember it was with Saraxi that I was taking notes. And when I got to about 20 pages of notes about what Saraxi had to say about this, I was like, wait, <laughs> you know, I'm not gonna be able to do this with a hundred texts, right? And the other thing that happened as, as I worked on it was that it really didn't start out as a project that was about law and ethics. But increasingly, that just kept on being what came up, right? So with Saraxi, he's like, he makes this distinction, which, you know, like either is or becomes, depending on how important you think Sadakzi's role is in this development. But like, you know, it's, it's a Hanafi thing, right? But um, I mean, not that it's necessarily exclusively Hanafi, but sort of distinctively Hanafi. You know, he has this distinction between being obligated to something deanitan, which means sort of religiously or ethically, we can discuss whether those are appropriate labels, but in any case, he makes a distinction of just sort of different modes of obligation, right? That are distinct from the kind of, you know, sort of um, enforceable obligation that could be, uh, you know, sort of um, imposed by a judge. Um, But he kept on coming up in other places as well, right? So, I mean, there there's this um, text that I look at in the first chapter that is a fatwa that is attributed to Ibn Abi Zayd al qayrawani and, you know, I would tend to think that it's plausible, right? Certainly, it's an early Maliki fatwa Um, but I mean it's this whole thing basically the whole point is that it's a Maliki husband sort of like wringing his hands about whether he's misappropriating his wife's labor right Um, this whole question of like well you know as a Maliki I know that sort of the majority doctrine of my math is that my wife doesn't have any obligation to provide housework but like i really want her to provide housework and like do i have to tell her that and if i don't tell her that am i like misappropriating her labor right and that comes out out, up uh you know elsewhere as as well you know uh the fatwas that are probably not by Sainun's son, but are, you know, attributed to him, you know, like there is this whole thing about where he's like, he he actually takes whoever is writing these fatwas or or producing them. uh, He actually, you know, sort of, chooses the minority minority Maliki opinion that the wife actually does have that obligation, but he limits it to a very sort of specific set of household duties. And he says that, you know, like if if a husband, you know, sort of pressures her into doing things beyond that, like say farm work, um, that, you know, like not only does he in principle uh, owe her back wages if she doesn't choose to forgive them, but also that, you know, like that could cost him his legal probity as a potential witness, right? Um, So, you know, like these really pretty weighty ethical issues uh, get raised and the other, the, the, the last thing that came up that really made me think, oh, this is, you know, sort of a project about the relationship between law and ethics is that, you know, the one thing that I think I came in knowing when I, you know, at the very earliest stages of this project and I think for reasons that we can, discuss later, I I think a lot of lay people, you know, sort of, this is something that they know, even if they don't know a lot of other things about the classical Islamic legal model of the marriage contract, but, you know, this idea that, like, well, legally, a wife doesn't have to do housework, and, you know, all other things being equal, she may be entitled to to household help, Um, you know, so I came in knowing that, but then I didn't know what to do with these anecdotes, whether the famous hadith about Fatima, which we can discuss if, further if you want, or, but there are other ones that you can encounter that are about early wives, um, you know, asking models of early Islamic piety, you know, like these men who clearly are considered to be moral exemplars, right, asking them for a servant, and basically being told that that's a bad thing to do, right? And I was sort of like, well, how do you, you know, how do you reconcile that, right? I mean, is it just that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing in this tradition? And, you know, like, I really didn't think that that was true, right? But I wanted to sort of develop, I mean, and obviously there is no one larger picture, but I wanted to sort of try to see if in specific instances I could draw a larger picture of what work these legal discourses about the marriage contract were doing uh, in a larger sort of normative landscape that included, you know, sort of genres that were projecting very different messages about wives and housework.
1: I do want to talk about the Fatima Hadith. <laughs> I I can't help but think that the, the Prophet's response was very dismissive. And it's come up in some of my conversations with people. Anytime a woman tries to say, well, I don't have to do any house, according to Islamic law, I don't have to do any household work. So what is this Fatima Hadith? What is going on in it? And to me, a very interesting, the role that it plays in the in the development of this discourse, because the earlier generation of scholars aren't using this hadith in the same way that the scholars later on use it. Okay, so
0: the Fatima hadith, I mean, I think, you know, like, I, I would say maybe it's a little more of a Fatima anecdote, because it's not one specific text. But I mean, the, the basic content is that Fatima is doing a lot of household labor, right? And that she approaches the prophet or asks Ali to approach the prophet to basically ask for a servant. The idea is that there are prisoners of war, right? Um, and, and, And that, you know, like she wants someone to, you know, I think implicitly an enslaved person to help out with household tasks. And in, I think the most widely sort of best authenticated and most widely cited version of it what he does instead is sort of advise her that um there are some pious invocations that she could do and that these would be sort of better for her than having a servant to release her you know to relieve her of these tasks right and you know like in a lot of ways, I feel as if maybe, you know, like I'm sort of agnostic about whether that happened. It doesn't seem to me completely implausible, right? I mean, you know, like Fatima is someone who dies quite young, right? And so, like, she is someone who doesn't really, like, unlike Aisha, she doesn't really experience the sort of prosperity and relative luxury of the post conquest period right um so like the idea that she experienced poverty or that you know like she experienced hardship like those seem you know like those seem to be ideas that are pretty you know sort of well established in her biography I mean there there are are also traditions that I think are more prevalent in Shiite sources about you know her having a servant um but you know like the, the the sort of point of the anecdote seems less to be about, you know, generic women and their, you know, sort of proper roles in a generic household than about sort of the power of prayer, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, sort of like the prophet is sort of giving a value lesson to Fatima but and and then you have all these different versions I mean it seems as if this you know sort of the basic kernel of it seems to be pretty consistent but for instance one thing that I discuss and I think it's chapter one is this early well I mean okay it's a text attributed to I think plausibly to this early Maliki scholar Ibn Habib Um, and you know like he has a version where, um, you know, like, it sort of addresses all the issues about gender roles that somebody might have had a problem with. So, I mean, you know, like, it's, You know, it's Ali who is, you know, sort of initiating it. So it's not her pushing back against what she's being asked to do, right? Um, But also she's really specific that like she doesn't mind doing the work, but it's just about, you know, and she sort of itemizes, she doesn't mind and, you know, like it's pretty heavy labor, right? But like what she really does mind is collecting firework, firewood, sorry, because it takes her outside of the home you know, and she's inappropriately sort of exposed to the public gaze. And so like, that does sort of feel because, you know, like, those elements of the story are not very widely distributed. (laughs) It feels like a sort of way of retreading the story that, um, you know, sort of, you know, it's already a story where she gets told that, you know, like, maybe having a servant should not be the thing that she's focused on, or, you know, getting out of this work should not be what she's focused on. But it's sort of, reframes it so that not only the prophet but Potsma herself is sort of modeling of a, a, a sort of gendered distribu- distribution of labor where, you know, like, you know, where she's supposed to do that work, uh, you know, like limited only by the fact that she should be staying indoors while she does it. Um, yeah, so I mean, it does seem to be a story that it, it seem you know, like, again, I'm not saying that it's necessarily, you know, sort of, it, it could have happened. I'm not saying that it's necessarily, you know, like, made up at some specific point, but it does seem to start getting drawn into the conversation about the legal conversation about marital obligations, you know, uh, a bit after the sort of ground level, uh, you know, sort of emergence of basic school doctrines, right? And so, um, you know, there are ways in which it sort of, particularly for Maliki, sort of gets incorporated more into the legal uh, conversation, but there are also ways in which it sort of subsists as part of this, you know, sort of normative conversation about sort of like what ideal spouses and their roles would be like, that sort of in some ways, I would argue remains autonomous from from the legal conversation. Um, You know, so like one of the basic arguments of the book is that a, there is no one, you know, sort of uniform, neutral, uh, you know, universally applicable relationship between fiqh in the sense of, you know, sort of the um, discipline of like legal study and different forms of ethics, but that in a lot of cases in different ways, and I tried to show in the different chapters of the book that there are quite, you know, sort of distinct, um you know, sort of constellations that um, can be identified with, you know, different schools of law, different periods of time, different individual authors. Um, But I mean, I think there are a lot of ways in which the fiqh conversation just is quite Uh, autonomous, right, Um, and it's not because it's, you know, sort of um, hermetically sealed in some kind of bubble of its own that is oblivious to the other kinds of normative conversations that are happening, but largely because I think in a lot of cases, it's just, as I put it in the book, answering different questions and doing different work. Um, In other words, as everybody has pointed out, you know, there are a lot of ways in which sharia is more than law right uh you know so i mean you know like i think that there are a lot of points of say ritual law that you know aren't obviously about you know sort of legal points in the modern western sense of being potentially litigable right um but i think in a lot of cases they're still sort of distinctively legal because they're about um validity <laughs> uh, of Uh, rather than being about, you know, sort of open-ended ideals of spiritual excellence, right? Um, And I think similarly, you know, like, I think it is surprising, and I think maybe this changes in a lot of modern contexts that, like, sort of legitimately sort of felt discourses are doing different work. And I'm thinking of, for instance, people like Brennan Ingram writing about Theo right? You know, sort of the extent to which say, the fatwa as a genre becomes a form of ethical pedagogy for ordinary Muslims. And I'm not saying that none of that was happening before, but that gets sort of amplified, you know, maybe particularly in cases where, you know, Islamic law is not the law of the land. But I mean, when you're looking at pre-modern marriage and divorce, I think there are a lot of cases where it would be surprisingly hard to like sort of go to a compilation and sort of find out how did the scholar envision a good husband or a good wife, right? That like, if you were just sort of a spouse who was going to this text to sort of find out, what should I do all day (laughs) Uh, to be a good Muslim husband or wife that like, you would just be reading the wrong genre, right? That like, there are a lot of issues, like, definitely, you know, say the allocation of the husband's time in a situation where there's more than one wife. Yes, that is addressed. And that is a question about appropriate behavior in an ongoing marriage. But like, So much of the legal discourses are about what are people obligated to do such that there could be some kind of legal, and by that I mean in this particular case I'm really thinking of like in court, (laughs) Um, you know, such that there could be some kind of legal or like material repercussion for say refusing to do it or doing it wrong. So I mean in a lot of ways I feel as if the Fatima story because it's about sort of the rights and wrongs of personal behavior it's not completely surprising that it doesn't always play a pivotal role in the legal discourse Um, because at the end of the day it's not really about who's entitled to demand what from whom you know what i mean
1: that makes sense. Yes. Um, because they're also, you know, is it, is it legally required of them? Is it ethically required of them? Because there's no legal consequences. If they don't provide the labor, I, I feel like only saraxi had some discussion on, well, here's what to do if she's not going to <laughs> provide the household labor. I wanted to just make sure that the readers, listeners got a sense of what the what the, the anecdote with Fatima is and how the scholars are using it, if at all, because some of them don't even seem to think about this at all. And then others later use this anecdote to then say, well, clearly it is required because if it wasn't even Fatima, even she didn't get any. And then later on, scholars, some scholars also then when they're challenging this idea of noble wives uh, not being required to do any household work, they're like, who could be more noble than Uh, Fatima and look at her so it's it's just really it's such an excellent way I think that some of these conversations end up being framed so let's talk about who exactly is subject to domestic service if it's because you talk about of course the fact that it's gendered but it's also obviously classed and you know there's um, uh, enslaved people have to provide certain kinds of uh, household services as well it's a it's a hierarchy and so when it's wives, which kinds of wives um, from, you know, which socioeconomic backgrounds, for example. And what I found really fascinating that I'd never thought about before was what counts as domestic um, service or, or what service even means. And are they, and that was another really thoroughly, very, I don't know how to pronounce the word thoroughly, but I, I want to use it. It was a very fascinating um a discussion where they're debating whether or not she can be compensated for her labor f- from her husband, um, and and that of course was about whether or not they believed she was obligated to do it in the first place. And so, what is service? Who gets to do it? So, I mean, I I'm, I'm not going to try. And in, in part, the book doesn't
0: really try to give a comprehensive sort of like, okay, here are all the school doctrines and and so forth, because like I do think that you know, sort of part of the argument of the book is that we should be reading uh, legal compilations really as authored works that have distinctive projects and, you know, like not necessarily just think, think of them as like repositories of, you know, a whole bunch of rules that represent school doctrines. I mean, that is definitely, you know, sort of an element of what's going on. But I mean, I think I would say that, you know, like it is largely a you know, sort of shared assumption that the kind of work that is appropriate to a person is status dependent, as well as being gendered. And one thing that I think is really striking, and it's one of the things that sort of drew me into the project. I mean, the first thing that I did on the project was about Ibn Taymiyyah. and I was just fascinated by the way that Ibn Taymiyyah was just like, well, the... You know the, the work that's appropriate for a wife it just depends right you can't say what it is you know like a bedouin wife is different from a sedentary wife and a urban wife is different from a country wife you know and and so forth and you know there, there there are moments i mean you know like uh, the maliki you know you know like that is you know sort of a moment where you have someone saying well you know sort of like a lower status wife has to and sort of linking you know like Cooking, sweeping, <laughs> you know, um, baking bread, uh, you know, making beds, whatever. So you you do get some uh, itemization, But like one thing that I find very striking is that, you know, overall, I think you can make the generalization that scholars are much less interested in sort of articulating some kind of concrete set of tasks that would constitute what they consider to be some kind of ironclad, you know, sort of set of wifely duties than they are in sort of saying, yes, what is required is for you to sort of, you know, do your gender duty as as it is understood in your social location, right? Like it's sort of surprising, at least was to me, the degree to which they are deferential to, you know, sort of social mores contextual social mores, right. And, you know, like, one thing that struck me was that this seems to be true, even when they are personally or religiously critical of those mores, right. So I mean, one example I give is Joanie, right, who, um, you know, as a Shafi, I mean, this is not completely uh, distinctive to Shafis, but you know, like, for whatever reason, as a school, they go in a little more deeply into this question of sort of like parsing the details of like, you know, essentially, what does it mean to sort of like maintain your wife in the style to which she is accustomed, you know, particularly, uh, you know, sort of as regards domestic service, right? And, you know, so they they go in a little more into the question of, well, you know, like, it should be, you know, sort of like the degree to which she was served in her father's house. But like, if her father was just like uppity or didn't know his place, and she got more serve, you know, like she de facto got more service than would have been socially appropriate for someone of her perceived status, then that doesn't, you know, count either. You know, so like, there's this huge, you know, sort of deference to what is socially appropriate as understood by this person's peers, right? But at the same time, Giwini is, you know, like, pretty um, withering when it comes to the social mores of the people around him, right? So, like, he explicitly cross-references the question of, like, a woman's, a wife's entitlement to domestic service funded by her husband with the question of um, a not necessarily gendered, but like sort of the default is male, right? Uh, Of, um, you know, like of a a implicitly default male um, bankrupt person. Uh, And, you know, sort of like what assets uh, can be sort of held back from, you know, selling off? You know, what assets don't have to be like divested or sold off to pay uh, a bankrupt person's debts? And you know, sort of the question of, you know, for what kind of a person is a servant a necessity of life is one that Duany like directly cross references. Right? He thinks the question of the wife who's entitled to it from her husband is. You know, sort of integrally, you know, like related to the question of a person who was, you know, like having their assets sold off <laughs> because they were indebted. Um, you know, like what could they claim? You know, like you you can't put them out of their their house, right? You can't leave them without clothing, right? But like, for what kind of person could it be claimed? Like, yes, I need a domestic servant servant because for a person like me, you know, and you know, like he sort of talks about like, well, there are certain people for whom it is socially inappropriate to like sort of do their own chores, right? But then, you know, like he, he sort of comes in and sort of, you know, and I can't, it's in the book, and I can't remember the exact wording, but he's like, but of course, you know, like what the children of this work world think is appropriate, you know, like has nothing to do, with, you know, sort of what's religiously right. So, I mean, and, you know, like, similarly, when he's talking about katha, in other words, who is the peer of whom for purposes of marriage, he's sort of like, yeah, these are the standards. And they're you know, like, he basically, you know, and he's not the only one, I talk about it with Melardi as well. But, you know, he's sort of like, yeah, he treats social status as defined by a person's peer, you know, social peers in their own milieu, as being something that like, It's a personal asset. Somebody's social status and personal dignity is a legally protected thing that other people aren't allowed to infringe upon. But he'll come back and tell you straight out that he thinks that people's received ideas of personal dignity and social status are religiously ridiculous, right? So, I mean, he'll talk about, like, yeah, for purposes of kafa'a, you know, a certain man may be inappropriate because of reasons of wealth, because of reasons of profession, because of reasons of perceived um, status. But then he's sort of like, yeah, but really all the only thing that matters is, you know, and I forget, it's like piety or really, you know, descent from the prophet Muhammad, you know, like, it's, 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 it's not the set of things that, you know, he thinks people are actually, you know, mostly pursuing when they try to choose the most prestigious suitor for their daughter, right? So, I mean, you know, there is this, you know, sort of strong sense that we're not, you know, like we're not gonna itemize because like the only people who really know what a woman can be expected to do for her marital household is that woman's peers, you know? Um, and, and so th- th- they're, they're intentionally sort of, I think leaving it pretty fluid.
1: What are the ethical, um what are the ethical meanings associated with domestic labor? What, what does ethics have to do with household labor whatsoever? Thanks. I think
0: that domestic labor in, you know, like is more salient in some of these pre-modern discourses and as a sort of part of a person's ethical self-fashioning that it necessarily is or like, you know. We don't necessarily talk about it that way now quite the same way, right? But I mean, for instance, if you look at these early Islamic texts that are about zuhud, which can be, you know, sort of very roughly translated as renunciation, right? It's sort of a broad set of pious ideals that can't be reduced to asceticism, but like often involve a very simple lifestyle, right? You find all these anecdotes about early renunciants who are essentially doing housework right you know you will t- you know they will be making their own bread or they'll be sweeping or they will be uh, washing clothes or things like that you know and later um, when you read about sort of the Sufi path right and you know sort of what Sufi aspirants sort of do in the early in the early stages of their training often it does involve these you know, sort of quotidian chores, right? You know, that, that, that things like sweeping or cleaning latrines or um, making food or washing clothes, right? That, you know, like essentially housework uh, plays a pretty large role. Um, and part of the reason is that to different degrees and in different ways, you're talking about sort of homosocial milieux, right? Where you have men who are associating with men and sort of somebody has got to do the work, right? Uh, whether they're off like doing Jihad, uh, you know, with some of the early Zahad or whether it's, you know, a Khanaka in, you know, you know, 11th century Khorasan or something like that. Um, but like, I think it's not, you know, like if it were just a practical necessity, you know, like if it were just sort of the static of everyday life, uh, they wouldn't tell us so much about it. And the reason they're telling us so much about it is that these were tasks that were understood to be sort of humbling, right? They're, they're understood to be things that they're not high status, right? You know, there are things that you are usually done by subordinate people, whether it be people who are subordinated for reasons of gender or um, age, age hierarchy, you know, generational hierarchy within the family, or whether it be, you know, free or enslaved servants, right? Um, you know, that, that, that these are things that in general are done by lower status people for higher status people. And therefore that, you know, like for a free Muslim man to be doing that kind of thing for himself is is humbling, right? And it can be humbling in a an ethically virtuous and and you know improving way right and obviously you know like these activities only become sort of salient and legible as acts of virtue if they're done by people who are considered not to need to do them, right? So, like, you know, you don't really get stories about, like, well, this woman, you know, swept the floor a lot, and, you know, like, that was super, you know, virtuous, if, you know, like, or or if a slave person did it, or, you know, you know, like, they become sort of legible as acts of, virtue when, some, you know, an unexpected, i.e. high status person does them, right? Um, but so then you also sort of get this contrast between sort of a legal tradition that generally emphasizes that status maintenance is a good thing to do, <laughs> right? And even an obligation. Some of these ethical traditions that sort of emphasize that sort of lowering yourself by doing you know, supposedly menial kinds of labor that you wouldn't normally be expected to do is, you know, sort of not only expresses your virtue, but develops your virtue by cultivating humility. You know, like I I gave, you know, a couple of examples, like one of the scenarios that jurists sometimes discuss, particularly Chafé's, is, you know, like, what if, say, a wife says, you know, like, don't, don't, don't hire a servant for me, <laughs> uh, just, j- just give me the money, <laughs> and I'll do the housework myself. Or alternatively, whether the husband is, you know, like either strapped for cash or a cheapskate, or I'm not sure what scenario <laughs> we're assuming here. But like, basically, the idea is like, no, <laughs> um, you know, one shouldn't in general. I mean, I guess I, I, my, my memory is that at least one of the scholars whose opinions that I read was like, well, if they both agree, it sort of leaves the door open that with both persons consent, that maybe one of them could, that maybe the husband could like do um, chores for his wife, you know, like if she was okay with it. But like, basically the idea is like, no, you know, like that's embarrassing, you know, like not only is it like it would embarrass her, but also that, you know, sort of, well, you know, the point of his financing domestic help for her is to maintain her status. And, you know, like that's not necessarily seen as just like something that she wants or likes, but it's seen as something that's generally the way it's supposed to work, right? Uh, And similarly, it's an idea that it would be, you know, sort of like um, humiliating for her, like that it would, you know, that that it would lower her socially to have her husband do these things, right? So, like the legal tradition is definitely not, you know, sort of focused on persuading people that, you know, cultivating humility through the embrace of uh, tasks that they could outsource uh, is necessarily, you know, like something that they should be pursuing. And again, I don't think it's necessarily that the legal, you know, the authors of these legal texts thought that it was categorically a bad thing to do. It's just that. In these particular legal, you know, in this genre, they're addressing okay, how do people appropriately fulfill their enforceable, you know, like contractual obligations as husbands and wives, right? Um,
1: yeah, yeah, no, that's um, that makes sense. There, there's definitely not unanimously saying that. Oh, you know, domestic work is it's a humbling and humiliating thing. It's just a couple of scholars here and there with their comments like. You know, if the, I forget who it was, but if the wife requests the husband to do it, and if he declines because it is humiliating, which is a very valid reason <laughs> this, <Yeah. laughs> for him to not do it. And it just had me wondering, like, what does it mean, right? And what does it mean that for some scholars, and because it was definitely not a majority view at all, that some of them found um, domestic work to be so. Inherently humiliating, but they still required women to do it. They still expected women to do it. And what what are they understanding? What are their understandings of of gender and marriage, or men in particular? That if household work is an ethical endeavor, why only for women and enslaved people or or lower class people, but not for the people who aren't required to do it? Because you you would think, as you just said. it's, it's a virtuous deed for people who are required to do it, but you would think the other way around, that because you're not obligated to do it, if you do it, it's good, you know, but I think that that's also,
0: the second thing you said is also true, right, so you have these stories about, say, Sufis, you know, like, even when you have people like uh, Abu Sa'id, right, you know, like, it's the early stage of his training as a Sufi where he's like cleaning latrines and sweeping you know sweeping mosques and stuff like that and he transcends that right and so like one aspect of that would be um you know uh i i assume that you've read zahra and fabulous book uh gendered morality right and oh, so like, yes. oh yes oh so,
1: <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> yes. right
0: and so like you know one thing that ghazali just in one of his works just you may say in more than one place but like that i'm aware of in one of his works he's sort of like well you know like can a poor person achieve you know essentially you know, sort of the pinnacle of what he sees uh, of, as the spiritual path. And he's sort of like, well, no, because, you know, like, if you're just constantly pursuing, you know, like, if, if you have to do all these subsistence activities, you don't have any time to pursue person, you know, spiritual perfection, right. And so like, there's a sense in which, uh, you know, as Professor Ayubi discusses in great detail, you know, like, this ethical tradition, um, really, you know, sort of, sees it, you know, sees the cultivation of humility as a meaningful thing, but, like, it's this very limited thing that you're going to transcend if you're an elite man, right, because it's a very early stage of, you know, sort of this moral or, you know, sufi path. Um, Another thing that I would say is, like, some of these scholars are just, like, yeah, it's humiliating. I mean, you know, like, there is more than one passage in which Sadakzi, I think he says that when he's just discussing or you know sort of like why it would be so bad for a woman to be married to a man of lower status than herself, he's just sort of like yeah marriage is subordinating to women and like they have to be getting something out of it because like otherwise you know like he's very you know, sort of aware that there's a downside to marriage for women. So like, you know, like there is a sense, uh, I think Mohammed Fadl came up with a passage, um, I think it's from talking about, you know, sort of like, why do women have to do sort of more mourning, you know, sort of observations than men did, you know, and sort of like talking about how important marriage is to women. So like, I, I do think that sort of that image of like what marriage is like for women, is double-edged and, and complex, but at the same time, I do think there is way- there are ways in which if you just really read Si carefully, he's sort of like yeah, you know, there are reasons why, you know, like there are things about this that are hard for women, or maybe not a good deal for women, and they have to be getting other things out of them to comp- out of it to compensate for that. The last thing I would say, though, and you know, this is something that Aisha Hidayatullah has talked about, and you know, more recently. Uh, I- Wallet-Cossey in her um, wonderful notebook book about neo-traditionalism, uh, you know, she just sort of talks about the fact that, you know, I think that there is a general shared assumption that hierarchy is a good thing that is integral to the right ordering of society and the cosmos. There are things that they openly think are sort of subordinating for people, and that can be distasteful for modern people who sort of like reflexively think that egalitarianism is right. Um, but which I'm not saying all modern people think that, but I mean, I'm just saying, you know, like, I think that that is, you know, a widespread assumption for many of the people, who are, you know, teaching this kind of thing in universities, say, in the United States, maybe. And that, you know, like, I think that they think that a lot of things, you know, like, in a lot of cases, if you could ask one of these scholars, like, well, don't you think this is really subordinating and potentially humiliating? And they would be just sort of like, yeah, that's, you know, the way the world is, It's the way the world is supposed to be, because they don't really have a problem with hierarchy. (laughs) Um, I I mean, I'm not saying that there's no egalitarian thought in the pre-modern Islamic tradition, there obviously is, right? But like, you know like I, I think that it is a widespread assumption in discussion discussing marriage, you know, or discussing who should do household tasks that you know, like, yeah, there are there are hierarchies and like obviously the bottom person, you know, the lower people in these hierarchies are being asked to do things that I guess you could say humble them and it sounds better or humiliate them and it sounds worse, but it's sort of, I think the degree to which we distinguish between those
1: two things might not be shared by some of these authors. Yeah, it's just the whole, you know, if you want to humble yourself and and as as, as Ayubi talks about this in the book, as you were just discussing, um, you know, as, as a way to humble yourself and to cultivate your nafs, you do these demeaning things and then you get to once you get to that elevated status, you don't have to do that anymore. And now it is definitely so demeaning you should not be doing that. But I, I want us to talk about what exactly this for those scholars who said that because you're very clear in the book that there's an evolution of thought here. It's not a there's a there's it's not a consistent opinion that women are required or not required to do household labor. But for the ones who do believe it is obligatory. What do they mean exactly? Because they're they're clear that it's not a legal obligation and it's not even a contractual obligation. Are there any consequences for 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 a wife to refuse to for, you know, a lower class wife? Let's say not the upper class woman. In some cases, can according to some scholars, she can um, she's exempt from it. And then also, how is it enforceable? Is it enforceable at all, or is it simply yeah. like well, most women are going to just do what they're supposed to because they. Accept the you know the existing existing world order as it is, and they're not going to challenge it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that my assumption, which is only occasionally explicit, is that they're assuming that the sort of unspoken enforcement, method, you know, method for all of this is divorce, right? That like basically. They're assuming that for many women, obviously, we know that there were many women in the pre-modern Muslim-majority world who earned their living, right, who are breadwinners in various different ways, but I mean, you know, like, I think their default assumption is that women want to be married and, in fact, economically often need to be married, right, um, and so therefore, a lot of the time they are not super concerned about, well, how do it, how would a husband constrain his wife to do this, right? So, I mean, you know, in that fatwa attributed to Ibn Abi Zayd al qayrawani that I mentioned, you know, one of the issues that the I don't know if he's hypothetical or real, but the questioner brings up is, well, what if my wife assumes that I'm going to divorce her if she doesn't do housework? Right? Am I then, am I then coercing her? Right? Um, and basically, the answer is such hair splitting. It's sort of like well if you know if you think if you feel that you want to divorce your wife because she's refusing to do housework then that's coercive and you're not entitled to it and that's wrong but if you just don't like her anymore because she's not doing housework and you sincerely don't want to be with her anymore then that's okay because you're in you know you're you're entitled to divorce her right um and i'm not saying that you know like i think it's relatively rarely that that really comes up explicitly but like i do you know like so this is I will admit, somewhat speculative on my part, but like, I really think that the assumed enforcement, you know, like very rarely, and I think this is Al Qurtubi, and excuse me if it's wrong, but like in um, Qurtubi's Quran commentary, I believe that he actually does bring up the question of, you know, when I think it's chapter four, the, verse 34, there, there's a passage where he's talking about essentially, under what circumstances a husband could discipline his wife, right? Um, and I believe he brings up *khidma*, or you know, like service, in the sense of like doing housework. But I found that to be very rare. Like, I didn't find a lot of discussion of that, right? And I think a lot of the times the assumption is just if a husband is radically dissatisfied with the way the marital relationship is working out, he's not gonna stay married, right? And another example of this would be, and this is something actually I didn't find myself, it's in Yosef Rappaport's uh, book on marriage, money, and divorce. But uh, Ibn Taymiyyah brings up, he's sort of talking about ways that women can you know, essentially in his mind, coerce their husbands to divorce them. And one of them that he brings up is that she could say, okay, I'm not obligated to do housework, right? And um, I think the reason, you know, you could say, okay, well, you know, she could just not do the housework. What does it matter if she has a legal obligation to do? I mean, if she wants him to do it and she doesn't do it, then he's probably gonna divorce her. And I, I think the point of her, you know, Ibn scenario of her making that as a legal point is the idea that um, sort of a judge's allocation of fault, you know, like whether it's sort of like he divorced her sort of quote unquote for cause, <laughs> uh, you know, might have, um, you know, sort of an effect uh, on you know on on how a divorce went down right and, and i'm not completely sure because this is just like basically it's not a real case it's imitating but like that seems to me like the idea of like the marriage ending seems to me like the main scenario which is like well how could you make a woman do that it would be sort of like and you know that, that it's an argument that Matt, like he sometimes bring up in support of the idea that, you know, sort of below a certain social status, a woman actually is obligated that like, well, everyone knows this is customary. So like, you know, sort of something that is just sort of implicitly understood as a matter of custom, you know, essentially is tantamount. And Imanchea Josiah says that too, you know, sort of like, if it is something that's just sort of established by custom and all parties to the, to the, you know, um, contract would necessarily know that this is customarily the way things work. It's implicitly part of the contract, right? It's implicitly part of what they agreed with each other. So like Saraxi is one of the few people, he's essentially like, well, you could just give her the absolute, you know, like the absolute minimum of, you know, sustenance that the law requires you to give her, which is essentially putting her on like bread and water, you know, like, or at least he argues that it would be. And you know, like that's really horrible and I don't want to like condone anyone suggesting that at the same time I think he's mostly saying it to make the rhetorical point that sort of like if either of the spouses were limiting were to limit themselves to the you know sort of things that are explicitly and forcibly required by the marriage contract that they would have a really horrible marriage, you know? And so like, he's trying to make the point that like both of you have to do things that aren't actually part of the contract if you're gonna have, you know, a functioning marriage, right? So like, he's sort of suggesting that, well, the wife, the the husband could sort of like work to contract. you know uh, and then everybody would be miserable but i think most of the time it's just like well if it's expected and she doesn't do it then the marriage isn't going to last very long i think that's what they think
1: So the, the saraxi comment you just made brings us to the question that saraxi asks that i i mean god his his views were just painful to to read a lot of a lot of it was but i feel like especially saraxi but I did like his question that what is the husband getting in exchange for his continuing provision of uh, maintenance if not her domestic service? So like, what even is the point of the wife if it is not going to be to provide? Because you're giving her a mahar, you're <laughs> maintaining her for the rest of your marriage. So what even is her uh, what even is her point? And I thought that was uh, that was an important question. Which then I was like, oh, what are the, the the earlier scholars who are arguing that a woman doesn't need to be? She's not required to do provide any domestic um, service their answer was, oh, it's just sex, right? She's only obligated to provide um, sexual services to her husband. Nothing else is her obligation. You know, I have to ask for the scholars who stated that only rich women, and again, because this is not a universal thing, that only rich women are exempt from household um, work and are entitled to the service of servants or enslaved people. What exactly does she provide? And this is, I guess, to Sarah's question: Like, what even is the purpose of the wife if she's not going to be doing anything for you, right? Other than uh, providing sex on, on on demand? Like, I think it it's it feels pretty unanimous that the wife is required to provide sex on demand. And to be fair, there are some scholars who also um, believe that the husband too is supposed to provide uh, sexual um, uh, services to the to the uh, to the wife. And I think at least Ibn Taymiya seems to, because you said, if, if I think you say something like, if not on demand he's she's he's definitely he requ- says he should save her with sex as he does with food so like that's pretty yeah. you know so, so there so there are some that are like it's not just the wife who is required to have sex with her husband whenever whenever he wants um it's vice versa too but they're so focused on this idea of the man's sexual needs being met by the wife that some of them are will even say something like um she cannot leave the house or she cannot work outside of the house because she's she might then be depriving yeah her husband of you know of his needs and so it just it has me wondering one what is the purpose of the um of the of the rich wife because it seems like it is a lot more I want to yeah. say cheaper or less expensive to marry a poor woman than to marry a, why marry a rich woman yeah I
0: mean ghazali actually says that in you know, uh, revival of the religious sciences. He's sort of like, well, if you marry a high status woman, you will lose her services. <laughs> you know, like, um, so he he does see that as you know, high status could be a future as you know a bug as well as a future. But, um, I mean, I think what I would say is that for Saraxi to go back to that example, he doesn't think that the wife is being remunerated specifically for her sexual availability. Like for instance, you know, like when he talks about like well, why why is a wife not obligated to go to Friday prayers? He points not to, well, she has to be, I mean, I guess you're assuming at that point the husband isn't at home and can't be having sex, but he's like, well, because she's supposed to be serving her husband, right? Khidma, again, service. And so on the one hand for him, it's not that she has to be home all all the time because she has to be sexually available it's um and also there's this thing where he's sort of like well he bought sex sexual access to her with the dower so like how can he be renting something he already owns right (laughs) basically he thinks that the maintenance that the husband provides for the wife is compensating her for the opportunity cost of being a wife so i mean he compares her to a judge um he compares her to the working part- partner in a commenda partnership, right? So he's basically like, so like basically the idea of higher ijara is that the worker, <clears throat> it has to be contractually defined, you know, like the quantity, quantity the, the very precise parameters of the work to be rendered for the wage, um, you know, have to be defined and you know, in these um, professions where either you're just sort of on call for something, like, right, if you're a judge, it's not that you're constantly judging cases, it's that you have to be there in case somebody's going to come with a case to judge, right, and so nobody knows how many cases you're going to be adjudicating or how much time and labor it's going to take you to adjudicate them, you're being paid to be a professional judge who's full time available for that reason, right? Um, And he he also talks about soldiers, right? There isn't always a war, but if you have, you know, professional soldiers, right, you're going to have to pay them and you're not paying them based on, well, you know, like we envision, you know, five days of combat in the month of Muharram, right? You know, like, it, it's, you know, like, it's a person being a full-time soldier or a person being a full-time judge, right? They're essentially on call for the thing that you want them to do. And so he tre- he says that there's an analogy with a wife, right? Um, it's not that she's being paid for a specific thing, although he implicitly does think she's doing uh, housework, right? But he basically thinks that homemaking is a full-time job and that it prevents wives from pursuing some other way of earning their keep. As you mentioned before, he also has deep reservations about whether women are capable of earning their keep in legitimate manners. But like I think you know, the, the the more explicit argument that he makes is essentially that being a wife is a full-time job, and therefore, you know, if the husband is detaining her for this purpose and you know partially like yes i think he thinks she's staying at home and that she should largely stay at home but when you talk about the you know the way in which the husband is sort of detaining the wife to do this the word habs is also the word that he uses for someone being detained or retained to be a judge right nobody is shutting judges into you know no one is like spatially confining a judge, right, he's, you know, like, regardless of the extent to which he believes wives do or should stay at home, he's really saying that, you know, like, they're retained for this purpose, you know, like, they're there all the time, you know, taking care of the household's needs, and therefore, a wife needs to be supported, and, you know, like, on the one hand, that's something that, you know, like, it's potentially a harmful logic for um, wives because like the sort of more sale-like, you know, like if you compare him with Mawardi, for instance, as a Shafri, and Shafris aren't all like each other, but Mawardi is a Shafri who leans in pretty hard to the sort of sale-like aspects of the marriage contract. And, you know, like he really, does pretty rigorously use, you know, sort of her obligation of sexual availability, not only as sort of the rationale for why she's entitled to uh, support from her husband, but also to sort of like think through the parameters of what that support is, right? So things that sort of are necessary for or support her sexual attractiveness or availability are things that the the husband should pay for, and if not, then not. But he also thinks of it, it's quid pro quo, right? The sale-like aspects mean that, like, um, if she wants, you know, like, if he is um, providing her with grain for her, you know, sort of the food aspect of her maintenance and her appetite isn't that big or she just is ambitious and she saves up some of it and sells it and uses it for whatever she wants. As far as Maworki is concerned, that's fine as long as she doesn't eat so little that she's gone to non-attractive purposes of sex because, again, the husband's entitlement is to her sexual availability and attractiveness. But he's really okay with this this is sort of a quid pro quo uh you know transaction and so like the the it's not just my but sort of the the chaffee view is that like if if the husband has been failing to pay it it accrues as a debt right because it's you know like it's an exchange and uh you know if, if 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 he's behind in his payments you know like they add up and she's entitled to them whereas you know for the Hanafis, it's like, well, you know, like if she didn't get the past maintenance and she didn't starve to death, then you know, like uh, he just, you know, picks up where he left off, um, you know, providing for her, right? But I do think that that's not inevitable in the Hanafi logic, right? Because if you think of it as opportunity cost, and you sort of think, well he's supporting her because being a wife, you know, being a homemaker is her in modern parlance is her full-time job. And you sort of think of, well, let's transpose this to a modern context where say, you know, your job is where you, you know, get your 401k. So you can prepare for retirement and where you get your health insurance and all of these things that you could say, okay, well, you know, like maybe the modern equivalent of, you know, sort of providing her in a way that would substitute for a job would involve more than just you know subsistence, uh, you know, you know sort of subsistence support, you know, in real time that you know sort of she's, uh, you know, like not really left with anything, you know, sort of when she's widowed or if the marriage ends or something like that. So I mean, you know, like I, I do think that there are different directions that you could take this logic, but. Saraxi does have a coherent logic that's different from she's being paid for sexual availability,
1: so the way that you've structured your book, um you know you you talk about the earlier um, generations, and then you get to, I think the last chapter is on Ibn Taymiyyah where he's reimagined re- the fourteenth century we're reimagining marriage now. Why? What is happening by Ibn Taymiyyah's time? What is happening in the thirteenth, fourteenth centuries? That Ibn Taymiyyah's idea of marriage is completely, not completely, um, it is partially departing from the previous traditions. Um, he's reimagining marriage. And I have a couple of quotes here that I found really helpful. And so um, on page 180, you say that he radically uh, revises traditional Islamic legal understandings of the reciprocal rights and duties of the marriage contract. And he frames marriage on the model of an enslaved person's comprehensive dependency on and obedience to the to an owner. And he synthesizes, uh, he incorporates a legal and an ethical discourse in his analysis of uh, of this discussion. What is, what exactly is going on at this time that might account for this uh, departure?
0: Okay. So, I mean, the hypothesis that I originally had, and this was like, you know, many years ago, I started out with a little conference paper on abantamia. and. My hypothesis at the time was really that something was changing in social mores in Damascus um, at that time. And, you know, I do think it's true. I'm not the first person to note this, but like that is a time and place where you start having, you know, sort of say biographical dictionaries, for instance, praising elite women for their homemaking. Right. Uh, so, you know, rather than just saying she transmitted a lot of hadith or she always did her prayers on time or like whatever other good things that you can say about a person, um, you would have even very elite people being praised for, well, she served her husband very well or she was a really good cook or, you know, these kind of, you know, sort of uh, like, for instance, okay, this is a famous thing. And again, I'm not the first person to have noticed it, but the historian Abushana, you know, like, he has this really long and lyrical and very personal poem about his wife, who is vastly younger than he was. And, you know, like, he says all of these things about, like, how she did, you know, kept house so well for him, despite the fact that she had servants, right? And so, like, there does seem to be something sort of culturally going on. Now, I will say that it is very hard to, you know, for me to get a bead on the question of, is this a change in social values or is this a change in genre parameters? In other words, you know, um, I think, you you know, like if you you remember earlier, um, I mentioned this Maqama, you know, Al-Hamadani's, you know, sort of uh, little comic vignette that has this nouveau riche person, you know, like bragging about his wife and, how busy she is in the kitchen and stuff like that and and you know like so obviously that was sort of a thinkable thought right you know like even if we're supposed to think that person is doge that was an under you know a legible boast in you know 10th century iraq which is a place where we're having all of these you know scholars saying oh you know elite wives don't have to you know do any housework or whatever um so you could say, oh, well, you know, like that's that's a value that existed for a long time. And, you know, like maybe what's changing is sort of the aperture of, you know, like it is, uh, you know, sort of notoriously the case that, say, once you get to the Mamluk period, you know, biographical dictionaries are just sort of more gossipy than they used to be. Like Sahawi or someone is just telling us way more about, you know, people's personal lives and their foibles and what they were like as human beings. Um than earlier biographical dictionaries would. So I mean, you know, like, you could say, okay, well, you know, like, would we have known it, uh, if somebody had really admired, say, you know, uh, a contemporary of Duaney, uh, for, you know, like, whatever, you know, she was very elite and also baked really good cookies or, you know, like, I I, I don't think that probably we we would have learned that even if that were the case, right? So, but, you know, like if we say, okay, well, you know, like both of these things are sort of textual things about what people express and, you know, sort of uh, put into the mix in different genres, I think you could say, well, arguably there is a development in, you know, sort of how people describe Model individuals uh, who were their contemporaries, and you know, sort of what someone like Ibn Taymiyyah is—you know, sort of, you know, someone who's less constrained by you know, by by the precedents in his school of law, right? You know, maybe he's just bringing into expression something that's in the air, right? Um, but in and that may be true. I found it very hard to sort of really substantiate it, just because it's really hard to compare oranges with oranges. Um, the thing that I think is indubitably true is that how he is using genre and discipline is different, right? And, you know, I think it's sort of notoriously true about Ibn Taymiyyah and, and his student Ibn al-Qayyim that, you know, they have this sort of idea of siyasa Sharia, and, you know, like there's this famous, um, you know, uh, Baba Johansen article about, you know, sort of th- th- their, their, you know, sort of very new ideas about witnessing, right? And, um, and, you know, so, like, I think there's very broadly this idea that Ibn Taymiyyah champions that, you know, you shouldn't have fiqh as this thing that's, you know, its own bubble, <laughs> and then sort of, like, politics and society over there, you know, sort of, um, he's sort of like, okay, we can synthesize this all, right? We, we can broaden what Fick is doing to incorporate more of these ideas about how society really functions, right? Um, and so, like, I think you can see that a lot in how he discusses marriage. But I mean, I think it's also clear in sort of the genres that he writes in, you know, because it's not like, oh, he writes a legal manual and then he has some kind of, like, you know, didactic work about how to conduct your marriage. Instead, he has these like fatwas or other works that sort of bring both of those together, discussing about, you know, what's actually, you know, sort of giving his legal analysis of the marriage contract and also being sort of like, yeah, this is my ethical ideal of um, what marriage is supposed to do. And like unsurprisingly, one context where he does that is his work on Ciesa Sharia, right? Um, So, he's sort of incorporating all of this into this larger picture, right? And he's much less constrained by sort of um, precedents within a school of law. So, and you know, so in some ways, I think he's sort of riding waves that already exist, right? Um, but because he's much less you know, sort of locked into these path-dependent and genre-specific conventions about, you know, what you say about the fiqh of marriage, you know, like, I feel as if he just can open the doors wide for introducing a lot of these things into a, you know, an analysis that's fully legal in the sense that he's, he is addressing
1: the question of, like, who has to do what and what's enforceable. Yeah. I have a question about what a class analysis might look like, but I think it'll make more sense after the question that I want to ask next, which is on what modern, modern and contemporary Muslims' ideas of household labor has been. What has that? What how has the conversation shifted? What does it look like today?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've got to say that I touch on this pretty lightly. So, I mean, I, I didn't really do modern research much. A lot of what I try to bring forth in the conclusion is about sort of what happens starting in the late 19th century. And I think there there are sort of two obvious things. One is that, you know, that's the point where sort of the idea, which is not untrue, right? I mean, it's not categorically true, but it's also has merit, right? The That's when the idea that um, you know, sort of well Muslim wives are exempted from an obligation for domestic labor sort of comes into the interfaith or anti-orientalist uh, conversation, right? So I mean, um, you know it it gets into a late 19th century Turkish sort of imagined dialogue between a, a an elite Ottoman woman and a... You know, uh, you know, a, a pair of French, uh, sort of essentially tourists, I think. Um, you know, who who have really sort of prejudicial ideas about the role of Muslim women, right? And so this is sort of part of a rebuttal, right? And it's a very elitist rebuttal. I mean, part of it is about how, you know it is super cool for, you know, it's such a great opportunity for women from the Balkans to be enslaved, you know. Um, But, you know, I don't know to what extent that specific work was effective in, you know, like disseminating that idea, but like, at least, it sort of surprised me by how early it was, because honestly, I had thought it was like the 1970s or the 1980s that this sort of became a talking point. But certainly in the later 20th century, it becomes a much more widely disseminated sort of talking point. And, you know, like, I don't want to use the phrase talking point to sort of delegitimize it. I do think that like many other sort of generalizations we can make about Islamic legal doctrine, you know, like, it can be qualified a lot, <laughs> just given the huge diversity of the of the tradition. But I mean, you know, like, obviously, there, there's a huge amount of material to to support that there are a lot of, you know, sort of very prestigious, um, you know, precedents that one could point to. And also, I mean, you know, like sort of pointing to those precedents, which, you know, have the value of being, you know, whatever, genuine pre-colonial precedents that, you know, in individual contexts may have the prestige of, say, like, for Moroccans, the Maliki school of law, right? Right. You know, like, these are important resources that are, you know, that that have been recuperable in some cases, like, so for in the, you know, Moroccan 2004, you know, new Moudawina, you know, like new family law, you know, like. I really don't know because I did not do this research and it may be sort of an ongoing story, but I mean, it certainly opened the door to the idea of, you know, sort of a woman taking away more marital property, you know, household property uh, at the end of a marriage on the grounds that she almost inevitably would have done labor that she wasn't, you know, understood to be compensated for by Uh, her marital support. And, you know, like there's also in the 1990s, um, Iranian, you know, legislation that sort of uses that (laughs) kind of logic, you know, sort of like how effective these laws have been on the ground. I really don't know. I didn't address that. But I mean, you know, so like, I I don't want to discount the degree to which recuperating that kind of precedent can be useful, right? I am an outsider scholar of this material, so I mean I don't want to be too like normative here. I do I do tend to you know sort of find persuasive you know arguments, say of the style of Keisha Ali, who has argued that you know sort of it might behoove people to look at this in a more systemic way, to look at sort of the assumptions and the structural you know interrelations that are informing um, some of the ideas. And I I do think some ideas like, you know, this idea of marital support as opportunity costs, uh, you know, like might be useful. Um, But again, it's sort of not for me to say, but like that does seem to me like one that sort of doesn't have the same kind of stigmatizing or, you know, sort of distasteful, um, you know, sort of quality for modern sensibilities and, you know, sort of like, might potentially be something that, you know, like, it's, you know, like, Mawardi talks about it, Sarasi talks about it, it's really deeply rooted in the tradition, um, and, you know, like, in my mind, might have potential for, like, sort of thinking about how it might apply to modern, uh, contexts where people, you know, like, not having a paying job disadvantages you in ways that, like, might not have been directly addressed um, you know, in an era before, you know, sort of lengthy retirements. you know, like I don't think the concept of retirement necessarily existed, right? Or health insurance or things like that. You know, like it, it feels to me like a concept that might be developed in in interesting ways in a contemporary context. Um, but who is to say whether
1: anyone <laughs> will uh, be attracted to that or not? well you know exactly and i think those are the questions that i you know I, I i would like to see addressed in 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 the way that contemporary muslims talk about this whole household discussion like uh, because the assumption then is well then um don't marry a poor person which then has me thinking about poor people like in the discussion where these scholars are talking about for the ones who say that a wife can't work outside of the house or she's supposed to be available for her husband at all times and so she can't work because you know she might be uh, needed and so on and it just it has me wondering, what about the poor woman, right? The poor woman who does, who has to exist for, you know, to work. One, she has she needs to work. And two, um, she's supposed to be uh, going and working for the rich woman that you decided doesn't need to be doing any household work. And so what about, what are her husband's rights? And these are questions that I, when I see Muslim women who, and, and I, I know it's well-meaning and it's, it sounds lovely and, but it is so um, just it's so classist, right? Like it is, it seems yeah. to all acknowledge, well, people's realities. I think you uh, quote someone in the conclusion um who says, uh, yeah, in our marriage contract, we made sure that we had something like my husband, I can't, I won't be doing any household work per Islamic, my Islamic Islamic rights. And as long as my husband can afford it, he will provide a household. I forget if it was like, he'll, he'll have domestic help or he'll, pay me for it I forget what it was but either way the point being you know the assumption being the husband is a part of his maintaining his wife maintenance for his wife is to provide these financial compensation or financial uh you know have domestic support it's just so unrealistic well I don't know I mean it makes me think I you know one of
0: the sort of predecessors that I you know sort of tried to acknowledge if uh it it, you know in framing the book was um Ingrid Mattson and, and you know like and her dissertation, um, and um, she has a chapter that, you know, overlaps with the topic of my book, but, you know, like, one of the things she points out is, like, well, who's doing the work, and she's sort of, like, well, the person who's doing the work is probably another woman, right, so, like, I mean, I, I feel as if maybe we can entertain both, like, on the one hand, you know, like, uh, there's an example even in um, Zibamir Husseini's book on, It's like her second book, I think, where she sort of talks to different contemporary Iranian thinkers about, she has some example of some like Mujtahid, who, you know, like, won't he won't even ask his wife to make coffee, you know what I mean? Like, who's very like, she's not obligated to do that. I'm not entitled to her work. I'm not gonna make her do it. And you know, like, on the one hand, you know, like, probably they have a female servant, right? I feel as if I can simultaneously appreciate the beauty of that gesture and, you know, sort of understand that there are structural problems with it. You know what I mean? To me, the part that was more the sort of usable takeaway from it is, I mean, for one thing, I mean, I feel as if, um, uh, you know, the 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 person you're referring to is what's her first name? Sophia yeah. Adin. Asma. Asma Odin, sorry. Um, and, you know, like one of the things she talks about is just sort of like negotiating that agreement with her husband, right? And, you know, like one thing that I tried to argue was that I think that that negotiation was an ethical practice, right? You know, there's a way in which, you know, I do see a lot of these scholars as, you know, not in always at all. And they have certain ideas about gender that are pretty inflexible, but I mean, I do think that they see a lot of these conventions about who does what work as being very socially contextual and potentially changeable. And so like, I do feel as if there's a way in which this whole lengthy Islamic legal discussion is sort of an invitation to be more reflective about these things, (laughs) right? Um, And, you know, I mean, if there's one thing that I think that contributes that's really useful to me is you know sort of they do not just reflexively take it you know you know they they're not just sort of saying oh well you know women do housework case closed, everybody knows that, let's stop thinking about it. They're like, wait, you know, women owe their labor. Is that labor being paid for? Is the husband entitled to their labor? What are the implications of that? They're asking a lot of questions. And they're also asking, what does it do for us morally to do our own Scott work? What does it do for us, do for or to us morally to have other things, other people do it for us? So, I mean, you know, We might not have the same answers that they do, but like, I think that they're having a really thought-provoking conversation about it. Um, And, you know, it may be that the very fact that they don't come up with some sort of ironclad, you know, universal consensus about, you know, sort of who should do what and how it's paid, how how they're compensated for it or something. Maybe that's a feature rather than a bug.
1: No, yeah, I mean, that's totally fair. I think when it's between individuals, like an individual couple negotiating on what the terms of the contract should be or what the household obligations for either person should be versus this generic um, look at all the rights that is, that islam gives women women don't even have to do housework you know they can hire someone instead and uh, them, i'm probably gonna if i'm living in a muslim majority country i'm probably going to be hiring a poor muslim woman to come work for me and so what are her rights like does she have the right to just not do anything because her husband has to provide for everything and she's not so i think in the in the more generic um dis- discourse i yeah. would love to see a more you know yeah um, and i mean
0: that's also something i struggled with a bit again you know like I, you know, this is not a text that I am personally invested in as a sort of normative or, you know, the authoritative thing. But, you know, these patwas that are attributed to the son of Sahnoon, um, you know, on the one hand, they're like, I was like, yeah, you know, where he was sort of like, you know, if he uses her labor, you know, like sort of extracts labor that she's not... Um, you know, that, that that she's not obligated to give him, then, you know, like, he could owe her back wages, or it could, you know, sort of impugn his, you know, sort of legal probity as someone who might later want to be a prayer leader, or give, uh, you know, testimony in court, or whatever, and I was like, yeah, you know, but, like, there are a lot of ways in which I all simultaneously felt as if he's just setting up an ideal that like urban elites can fulfill and that peasants are gonna, you know, eternally be doing the wrong thing, you know, and be judged wanting, right? Um, So, you know, and it's not, you know, like the tradition has, you know, like, you know, like there is a rich tradition of North African Berber discussion of that, that in some cases, you know, sort of uh, allocates, you know, peasant women, uh, you know, sort of property or, you know, parts of the harvest on the basis of the labor that they contributed. So, like, I'm not saying that, you know, like, the tradition, you know, that the Maliki tradition doesn't, in some periods and places, really do really interesting things uh, to address that, But you know, like, some of the things that seem, you know, like, most exciting, (laughs) you know, also seem to sometimes have this class edge. Yeah,
1: no, that makes sense. Well, those are all the questions that I have. Thank you so much for your time. And I, I really enjoyed this. And I'm, I have no doubts that our listeners will as well.
0: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
1: Okay. So that was my interview with Marion Holmes-Katz on her latest book, Wives and Work, Islamic Law and Ethics Before Modernity, published in 2022 with Columbia University Press. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you again soon. Stay peaceful.